Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, Romans chapter 10 is where we need to be this morning. We're going to return to our studies in Romans. It's good to be back. Um, I was gone a couple of weeks, went to see my son, my dad, and this weekend helped my daughter move from her old place to her new place. And all of it was good. I'm happy to be back, but was happy to spend the time with them. It's a great privilege, isn't it, to be a father and to be a husband. Those of you that are fathers and husbands, you understand that. And um, thankful for God's goodness while I was away here. For the, those who took my post, thank you for that. Um, and thankful for God's care over me and my family while I was away. So, and it's my privilege to be back. Romans chapter 10. We're going to begin actually reading in the latter part of verse 20, or chapter 9, I think in verse 29, right? It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued, and you might not remember this, but that word there, pursued, means like hunted it down, who hunted down the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it, they hunted it down, not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them. They are, they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I mean, anyone with any sense of the holiness of God and their own sin That verse, that one verse makes them leap for joy, for joy. Let's pray. Just a short hymn to help me and help you. Father, I approach the throne of glory. Nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. Father, as we now turn our attention to you, the living God, from the pages of your word, we ask for help. To me, this seems like a fork in the road sermon. The choice needed to be made of what kind of Christian or what kind of church we are or are not. But this is good news from you to us in your gospel. It's honest, it soothes, it protects, it magnificently confronts our self-righteousness because God, we admit by nature, our hearts can hide the truth to deceive ourselves and to serve only our own interest. And this text stops that. And it can make us a lot easier to be around in the best of ways. And of course, God, it reveals how righteous you are, but also 
and this is such a mercy from you, it reveals how righteous we are, but only by faith in Christ. Please then show us Christ. For his sake, our good, and your glory. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he died in, on March 1, 1981, is a preacher from the past who, who has helped me tremendously. I am in so many ways indebted to him, and he doesn't even know me. In his first sermon at Westminster Chapel, December 29, 1935, he opens with these words. I feel it is an interesting and profitable subject to try and decide which is the more dangerous position for a person to be in. To state openly and frankly that they are not at all interested in Christ and religion or to follow Christ for a wrong, false reason. I know that ultimately there's no difference between the two people. The one who follows Christ for a wrong reason is as much outside the kingdom as the person who makes no pretense to follow Christ at all. That is perfectly true. But I do think there is an important distinction between the two when you regard things merely from the human standpoint. The difficulty with a person who follows Christ for a wrong reason is that they do not only deceive themselves, but they also deceive the church. When you're confronted by the one who says they do not believe in Christ, then you know exactly what to say and exactly what to do with them. But when a person presents himself as a religious person, moral, zealous for good works, the church tends to take them for granted. It would be an insult to question them. The church assumes that because the person acknowledges themselves to be a religious person, they are therefore a Christian. However, One of the most dangerous places for such a person to be in is the church of the living God. Indeed, to be a religious person is one of the greatest hindrances hindrances to the church and becoming a Christian because it gives certain satisfactions. Religion is dangerous, you see, for this reason. It it, It is always something that puts emphasis upon our activities, our practice, and thereby we tend to think that it's entirely a matter of our activities, our contact, and our behavior. With the, with the result that God is nearly always forgotten. Take it for granted, of course, but therefore forgotten. Now, when you hear that, in light of what I just read, and you have a pretty good grasp of the New Testament, I think it's safe to say what he's saying rings true. Because just like yeast spreads so easily through the dough, so this kind of thing, this religious kind of thing, can spread through a church. And of course, the difficulty at least on the surface is religion, in one sense, has a tremendously strong moral element to it. I mean, at the end of chapter 9, we read it, and at the beginning of chapter 10. So, if you keep that in mind, let's remember first that, that Paul's readers, his original readers, he was addressing Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in a church at Rome. One group, the Gentiles, came out of a clearly immoral context. No problem with that. The other group, however, the Jews, they did not. I mean, some of you know this, twice a week fasting for the Pharisees, weekly Sabbath worship, synagogue commitments, what seemed like a life with a million religious rules to follow, and they were doing their best to follow everyone. A robust life of don't go there, don't touch that, don't do that, don't look at that, and even don't eat that, and why aren't you trying harder? Now, 
At this time, the Christian church was just a few years removed from its very first church council. You can read this in Acts 15. And what that council did in part was deal with the Jewish law, its place in the gospel, and its place in the Christian life. And in Romans, Paul has been making the case that the gospel says, if you trust in your own goodness at any level, you are doomed. That righteousness comes from God. So it goes like this. There is a righteousness that God requires. God himself has made it available. It is available in the person of his son. It is a righteousness where men and women cannot achieve, and it's given then only by faith in Christ. That's the grand theme of the letter. It's in every chapter. Your goodness will never be good enough. So it's not that we shouldn't be good. No one is saying that. It's just that it won't be good enough. And the motivation for being good begins with God and his love for us. And it's not us trying to prove we are good. And for some people, they're not just good. They're like the elite good. And so... If you're here listening or you're there watching and you say, you know, I've I've never heard this idea that once I believe in that exact moment, I am in Christ and God treats me as if I've never done anything wrong and I've done everything Jesus has done. Therefore, I'm only righteous by faith. I've never heard that before. Well, then you welcome to Christianity because you've been stuck in religion. And loved ones, you cannot imagine the shock and for some the anger which comes in response to faith in Christ as as a righteous, devout, conservative, religious, Jewish person would be. I mean, that would be like you're 40 years old and you finally found out that you were actually adopted. 40 years going and you're like, I'm mom and dad, but no, actually I'm adopted. That would be shocking to you. It was shocking to the Jews to hear this. Now, the unconverted Jews of Paul's day were clearly trusting in their own goodness and relating to God and relating to themselves and relating to other people through that framework, through the framework of the law, of law keeping, of law obedience. Their obedience and not Christ's obedience was the key. And so the moral law, so you have the moral law and you have the ceremonial law, was like a checklist for them, a scorecard. Doing it, mark it off. Doing it, mark it off. However, here's the thing. If God accepts and his law demands complete, total perfection, 24-7 perfection externally and internally, and and, and it does, that does not exist in the human realm. That only exists in Christ and by faith. And that is ultimately what Paul is telling the church in these verses. Christ is the only foundation on which a true gospel of grace can be built. Because this is what it means. And you've got to think this out. Because it means that with God, he's not hungry looking to find some goodness in us to satisfy himself. He's not looking for some loveliness he desperately needs to see us produce. He does not love us because of any loveliness in us or that we create. Listen to Martin Luther. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to him. The love of God loves sinners, evil persons, fools, weaklings, in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong in Christ. Rather than seeking its own, the love of God flows forth and bestows good, and therefore sinners are attractive because they're loved. They're loved. 
They're not loved because they made themselves attractive. I was rereading that part this morning, and I was thinking, that's how I met my wife. That's the reason why I'm married. (laughs) I wasn't attractive to her. It was a merciful thing that she married me. It's the same with my conversion. It's precisely because God is God that he does not need us, that he relates to us by sheer grace, and that no other God can do that. So if a person is the sort of person, as the Jews were, as religious people are, that is tempted to think, okay, by the greatness of my service, by the intensity of my zeal, their commitment, that they're actually doing God a favor, or here's the thing, or doing themselves a favor, right? So in their obedience, they're trying to put God in debt to them. Well, they need to be told, not only... Is that not love? That sounds like lust. All your service, all your ministry is your joy and your privilege to be brought into his life. The burden is all on God, not on you. Therefore, he, God, relates to you and relates to me as Christians by sheer grace in Christ. How could it be any other way? And so Israel, Paul writes in the latter part of chapter 9. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. They seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, but they missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they were doing, which, which shows here in the text that basically they were doing for themselves. So they started with themselves. They were so absorbed, zealous in their little God projects that God put their, his son right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road and they just stumble over him and just go sprawling. Why? Because their minds were fixed on what they could achieve instead of on whom they were to believe. They tripped over the, the very stone, the scripture message. See it, verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And by the way, do you see that little phrase, put to shame? More on that next week. Because just think with me for a minute. What, what does the law do and what does, what does religious people do apart from Christ? Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. You're not doing that. Shame on you. You're not doing that. Shame on you. Why can't you be more like shame on you? That's law. But you see it there. You'll see it in the latter part of chapter 10. In Christ, no shame at all. That is grace. That is mercy. So we ask ourselves, what what do we know about religion? And what what will religion do to a person? Right? Because you want to say, when I say these things, what's wrong with a little zealous moralist, right? We could use some morality these days. That's what people say. Well, let's find out what's wrong with it from the pages of the Bible. Three points, four verses. Three points. I love you even though you hate me. Point number two, you think you're right, but you're wrong. Point number three, Christ and not your zeal ends your desperate need of righteousness. Number one, I love you even though you hate me. Verse one, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. This is what Paul is saying. In the deepest part of Paul, the very core of him, that which makes him him, his his essence, his personhood, 
it would be so pleasing to him for my people, the Israelites, to be converted. So, so, so this, is, this is real. This is Christian, okay? It's not propaganda. It's not like we support Israel. No, they're going to die and go to hell, and I don't want them to, so I'm praying. And the word there, prayer, means consistent pleading. In, in the Greek, you can't see it in the English. It's like Paul's like, all day, all along, I'm praying for my people. Pleading to God, petitioning God. When I pray, I want God to save them. Now, think with me for a minute. All of us have a family member, I imagine, a close friend. We have close friends who have family members who are unconverted, and we care for them deeply, and we pray, and we plead, and we petition God to save them, to convert them. But what makes Paul's prayer here so, so incredible is that Paul's own people hated him. They hated him. They often tried to hurt him, and they had a couple of plans to try to kill him. Now, you probably know this, but at this point in Jewish history, the, the Jewish religion, as all religion is, is, was very destructive. It was very violent. And whenever they, whatever they knew of God, it was not based, verse 2, you see it there, it wasn't based on knowledge. So again, so much so that they were so out of whack with God, when the Son of God is, is set before them, right? The best and most moral among them, the best they can do is want to kill him. Now, don't miss that, please. I mean, don't miss that, right? <laughs> the, 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 the Holy Joe people, you know, here are Holy Joes. We're going to fix things. We're going to make things right. Enter Jesus Christ. He's not holy enough. He's not sent from God. So let's have him killed. Not, let's see if we can help the poor guy. So I need you to think with me, please. How did the religious, zealous, conservative Jew act in response to the good news of Jesus Christ? How do the religious, the moralist, the self-righteous, which I can behave like pretty easily, unfortunately, how did they respond to the gospel? How did they act and respond to Christ? How did they act in response to Paul who preached Christ? How did they act in response to Stephen, the Church's first martyr, how do they act in response to John, to Peter, and other apostles, and other Christians? Let's just be more exact. How do religious people who are, verse 2, zealous for righteousness, okay? Zealous for righteousness. How did they respond to Christ, his good news, his messengers, his people who spread it, try to proclaim it and live it? Well, some said yes. But those who did not say yes, they essentially wanted to destroy, kill, separate, hurt those who disagreed with them and those who preached Christ to them. That's religion. So this is what they did. We're going to put Jesus on the cross. We're going to put Peter, James, John in jail. Rough them up a little bit, threaten them a little bit, kill some of them. So you can preach morality all day, Peter, John, do it. But don't preach Christ. Or let's say this, Acts chapter 8. What was the response of the religious, zealous Jewish person to the Christians there? Let's just, let's just try to get rid of them. 
Let's get rid of people who say that their righteousness comes by only faith in Christ. Let's get rid of them. Let's persecute them. Let's put them on the run. Let's take away their livelihood. Uh, let's kick them out of town. All in the name of what? Now think with me. What were the religious Jews going around saying? Were they saying this? We love immorality. Woohoo! We love to hate and we love free sex and we hate good things and we want our boys to be robbers and we want our girls to be bad. Were the Jewish people saying that? Now, what were they saying? We want to be righteous. We are so zealous for righteousness. We are serious about righteousness, we, but we want to be righteous our own way, not God's way. And you know what? We'll use our Bible, sure. We'll open up our Old Testament and, and just talk from it, but it won't be God's way. It won't be Christ-centered. It will be moralistic. It will be kind of therapeutic at times. Excuse me, this is getting loose. Verse 3b, do you see it? If you have a look down in your Bibles, they sought to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Christian, look alive. You don't think that we can ooze our way into that framework from time to time? You don't think that? Read your Bibles. Read, read the epistles to the Galatians. Read the epistle to the Colossians. Read Philippians. Read Corinthians. Read history. Now, loved ones, religion may not be so outwardly violent these days, but it is still destructive. It still separates. It still condemns. It's still there. Listen to Graham's Goldworthy. One of the things he says is that the reason why religious preaching is so popular is because we're all legalists at heart. He explains, we would love to be able to say that we have fulfilled all kinds of conditions. Be that surrendering fully or getting rid of every known sin so that God might truly bless us. The preacher can even aid, and, and albeit the legalistic tendency that, that is at the heart of the sin within us all. All we have to do is emphasize us. Our humanity, our obedience, our disobedience, our faithfulness, our surrender to God, and so on. Misuse the law. But the trouble is that these things are all valid biblical truths, sure. But if we get them out of perspective and ignore the relationship to the gospel of grace, they replace grace with law. They replace God with us. They replace Jesus and his righteousness with our moral effort and our righteousness. So, the religious Jew responded to Paul with hate, right? You're not good enough, separation, condemnation, and destruction. However, what does Paul, or how does Paul respond as a Christian whose righteousness, you see at verse 4, comes by faith in Christ alone, okay? So, people who try to secure their own righteousness, mean as all get out. People who, who come in repentance and faith and receive their righteousness by faith in Christ alone, what do they do? Here's why I ask that. One, the question has to be asked. Paul prays for them. I want them to be converted. And you know, for the people who say, if a church keeps preaching grace, 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 you know, you're going you're gonna to turn your Christian life into Studio 54, right? People are going to do whatever they want, and they're just going to sin more and more. That is not true. Read your Bible. If you, we keep assuring God's people of God's love, they change. 
They do what he wants. We love because God first loved us. Grace changes people. How could it not? And it's that love that causes us to desire him. And it's that desire that makes us able and wanting to walk with him. So there need no be no need of fear that grace will lead us to sin. The grace of God will lead us to God. Grace will stir in the hearts of God's people and change their want-tos and to, you know what, what does he want? What does he want? When Jesus Christ forgave Paul, who was a rascal, a maniac, his own words in Acts, when Jesus Christ forgave Paul and saved Paul, Paul responds to the Jewish people who hate him, who want him dead, who talked about his master, who talked about his king, who talked about his savior, Jesus Christ, and put him to the cross He says, I love you, even though you hate me. All I want for Israel is the very best for Israel. And the very best thing for Israel, my own people, is salvation in Christ. Nothing less. I want it with all my heart. And I'm going to pray to God all the time for it. That's Christianity. It is so different. It is so unlike religion. That's the first point. Second point, you you think you're right, but, but you're wrong. Verse 2 For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see the word zeal there, or zealous? Paul has the idea of fury here. They had a furious rage for God and for morality. Again, just think about that kind of person. Furious for, for morality. And, and if you saw that fury for righteousness apart from Christ in, in real time, it could be a little intimidating, couldn't it? I'm doing this today, and tonight I'm doing this, and tomorrow I'm going there, and then I'm going to give this, and then I got this done, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give to this thing, and I'm going to do this thing, and I'll pray this. It's like, I'm just going to try to take a walk with my wife tonight after church. It could be very intimidating if you're not grounded in Christ. All their zeal, verse 2, misguided, not based on knowledge. The word there for knowledge is epinosis. It means experiential knowledge of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, they didn't know Jesus at all. So their zeal was destructive, as religion always is so destructive. I think one reason for this is, if you think about it, religion wants a win. Like right now, that's that's how religion, even like, Christian who's more religious than Christian, if you would. I know that's an oxymoron, but just bear with me. You just want to win. We want to be on the winning team, on the winning side. We want to look like a winner. You know, we, look, we want people to look at us and go, wow, look at them. Zealous for religion. So they never missed the meetings in the synagogue. They had a zeal for God, but their zeal was based on ignorance. What was it the definition of a fanatic? A fanatic is somebody who has lost sight of what they are where they are going, and redoubles their effort to get there. That good, a fanatic is someone who has lost sight of where they are going and redoubles their effort to get there. Full of zeal, but not full of knowledge. Not understanding what they should actually be zealous about. Now, I need you to think with me as we just kind of get ready to close. We're not exactly there yet, but we're on the way down. Let's go back for a second to Romans 1. Because Romans 1 
forms the whole entire argument for Paul as you follow it through Romans. Paul said that after God revealed himself deliberately and so clearly, this is Romans 1, to everyone who's ever been created, that people suppress the knowledge of God and they exchange the truth of God for a lie and served and worshiped the creature rather than the creator who's ever praised. So the judgment that Paul announced that is on the human race is not because the human race has just given itself over to atheism. What provokes the judgment of God is religion. False religion whose object of zeal and devotion is an idol. So it could be themselves or it could be something else. And so that's where the truth of God in Christ is traded and it's swapped for something else. Something other than God. So you remember, what was it that Satan said? One of the things that he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will be like God. Right? Disobey God and you will be like God. Okay, think, think. What does that mean? Well, I'm never going to be dependent on anyone for anything ever at all. I mean, that's kind of the American dream, isn't it? I don't want to be dependent on anyone for anything. And so the religious person tries to frame their life, plan their life, live their life, never dependent on anyone for anything. And if they did need something from someone, then it becomes like using people and using God. Classic paganism. God, I'll give you this, and if I do this for you, then you're going to have to do this for me. You see, what Paul is saying here, that it's not enough to be zealous. I mean, again, who were the most zealous people in Jerusalem when Jesus appeared on the scene? It was the Pharisees. It was the scribes. Remember, they're the separated ones. They spent their whole life pursuing righteousness. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. Separate yourself. Don't touch this. Don't look at that. Consecrate, 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 consecrate. And when their righteousness is right before them again and again, and he's there to save them, the best they can do in their religious mind is, you know what, let's get rid of him. Why? Because they're looking for justification with God by works, and they stumbled over Jesus Christ, and they didn't realize that they had to give up any claim to personal merit at all. They had to give up all boasting. You know how hard that is for a religious person? They had to say some of the most, they had to say some of the most precious and safe words anyone can ever say. This is the hymn. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. If my zeal never ended, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Another hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That drives a religious person with their big fat list crazy. But it makes a Christian glory in Christ. I have no righteousness to offer God save the righteousness that has been granted to me by his son, Jesus Christ. Say that to yourself a million times. So the Jews were zealous, but it wasn't according to knowledge. They had a kind of superficial religion. 
which causes pride and arrogance and destructive ways. Now we get to our final point. First one, I love you even though you hate me. That's what Christianity does. You think you're right, but, but you're wrong. That's, that's religion. So sure of itself. Finally, Christ and not your zeal ends your desperate need of righteousness. Uh, verse 3 again, then verse 4 since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. Well, think on that. You want to know why there are so many religions in the world? There you go. You want to know on some level why there are so many denominations in the world? There you go. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, Christ is the culmination. Some translations, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That is simply saying this, the end of the law, the goal of the law, the purpose of the law according to God is Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law, the goal of the law, the end of the law was never given by God as a way for us to attain status in his family by our merits. The law was given to show the perfect righteousness of God and it to be a mirror to us, which we look, we look into that mirror and I promise you we do not flex Rather, we see the perfect righteousness of God and we compare ourselves warts and all and we despair of our own righteousness and the law sends us packing. It sends us rushing to the cross, running to Jesus for all his worth, for grace, for grace, for grace. Because the law does what it says. It exposes sin. And anything which exposes our sin screams to us our need of a Savior whose righteousness alone can justify, and therefore we need Jesus. And so Paul says, that's the tragedy of the religious people he loved. They missed it. They sought righteousness through their personal obedience, and rather than being honest and seeing the impossibility of that, they went to work to try to kill the Son of God instead of bowing to him. And as their savior, and as their king, and as their friend. A few applications, then we're done. Let's just ask yourself some questions. Do, do you see how destructive religion is? Do you see how destructive religion is? Do you see how, listen carefully, do you see how destructive bo- bare uh, morality is? Just bare morality? Which means, do you see how the preaching of Christ is the only way to preach morality? If you just throw morality out there, you see how destructive it is? It's got to be tied to Jesus. And if you're there, there, or out there, and all you're hearing is, okay, so we can disobey now. That's so silly. This is what I'm saying. I'm telling you not to be good. Be Christian. Because being Christian is better than being good. Okay? Being Christian is better than being good. For once we grasp the radical nature of the work of Jesus Christ, it it not only ends legalism, but it brings a freedom to us that kills despair. And ask yourself this. As you serve God, which I thank you for, are you serving him as kind of like a Humpty Grumpty No one, nothing's good enough, no one's trying hard enough, no one's doing enough, and if this, and if that, and if that, that's religion. Religion is never satisfied. Christ is our satisfaction. 
And remember, the end of religion is destructive. Read your Bible. Stephen, dead. Christ, dead. Paul, dead. Peter, dead. All at the hands of religious, zealous, moralists. A quote. Two quotes, and we're done. The difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, fear-based life. Christianity, faith working through love. Religion, compulsive obedience. Obeys God and moral codes out of fear rejection. A compulsive, driven moralism. Driven, but the goals are unrealistic. Often a lot of self-criticism of others. Christianity obeys out of joy in your father and out of gratitude for the certainty of his love. How can I live so ungratefully to the one who will never reject me? That's Christianity. Religion controlled by people. Expectations and opinions of others become the real moral standard. We are controlled by what people think, only what we think. Christianity, integrity and courage is easy. The only person whose opinion counts is my father in heaven. Religion, hiding. Lots of strategies to hide our inner and outer failings from ourselves and one another, including gossip, blame-shifting, anger at other classes and races, obsession, addictions, overwork, zeal, etc. Christianity, open and transparent, freedom from having to put up a front, able to appreciate people who are different and are hurting. Religion sees difficulties as paybacks from God, result in either guilt because there's an awareness of a moral failure or bitterness because there's a feeling of moral accomplishment. How could God treat me this way? Christianity learns to see discipline as fatherly, loving instruction, preparing us for some future good or test. Learn lessons, show patience. Religion, begrudging repentance. Admitting failure is so is destructive of one's very basis for living, that, that being a sense of moral adequacy. So repentance to the religious person is galling. It's a last resort. Christians admit, admit their failure because they live in the identity of Jesus Christ as adopted children. Repentant, repentance reminds them anew of the magnitude of his love. They repent quick. And willingly. Okay, final quote. Christian, look how powerful the righteousness of Christ is. And look what your righteousness cannot do for you. Are you accused by Satan, the world, or your own conscience? Christ has called you, Christ is called your advocate. Christian, are you ignorant? Christ is called the prophet. Are you guilty of sin? Christ is called a priest and a high priest. Are you afflicted with many enemies, inward and outward? He's called the king, the king of kings. Are you in dire straits? Christ has called your way. Are you hungry and thirsty? He is called the bread and water of life. Are you unsure of what to do? Christ is the light of the world. Are you afraid you shall fall away and be condemned at the last? Christ is your second Adam. He is your representative in whose death we died and whose satisfaction we is all that God requires. Your righteousness 
can never give you that. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Ah, Father, thank you for astounding us with your grace. Sometimes, God, when the gospel is preached, it's, it's like it's brand new. It's brand new. We, we pray that you would restrain the evil counsel of religion. A religion that sets itself up against your son. And cause us to see the evil of that way. That we may turn and repent and rest. That we would keep that you would keep us from justifying ourselves through, through ceaseless works so that we can live by faith in Christ and not personal instinct and certainly not in our own obedience. And then, God, help us to live to the praise of your glory as deeply loved children who really have nothing to fear. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.